0: Hello and welcome to episode 46 of Radicals in Conversation, the monthly podcast from Pluto Press, one of the world's leading independent radical publishers. I'm your host Chris Brown. Already this year we've witnessed a number of devastating and deeply disturbing extreme weather events across the globe. From flooding and forest fires to soaring temperatures, it's abundantly clear that global warming is accelerating faster than anticipated and our window of opportunity to combat its worst effects is shrinking commensurately. The 26th UN Climate Change Conference of the Parties, better known as COP26, is of course gearing up to take place in Glasgow at the end of October. But many of us would question whether the process is capable of delivering the radical emissions reductions we need in the timescale required, or indeed if any process that's so dominated by the rich nations of the global north can result in an agreement that has the principles of climate justice at its core. Training our gaze elsewhere then, this month we consider the framework of the Green New Deal, In its myriad formations, from the largely status quo visions of green capitalism to the Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez Green New Deal resolution to more radical programs founded on the principles of anti-imperialism, agroecology and just transition. Well, joining us to talk about all of this and more are Max Eil, author of A People's Green New Deal, Chris Saltmarsh, author of Burnt, Fighting for Climate Justice, And Adrian Buller, a senior research fellow at Commonwealth and author of the forthcoming book, The Value of a Whale, on the delusions of green capitalism. And that book is out next year from Manchester University Press. Both The People's Green New Deal and Burnt were published by Pluto this year. Uh, Burnt is out actually just this month in our Outspoken by Pluto series. As always, podcast listeners can get 50% off both books for the next month. Just head over to plutobooks.com and use the coupon PODCAST at the checkout. A shout out as well at this point to Sheila Cullity and Alicia Henderson, who are our newest Patreon patrons. Thanks to you both very much for your support and your ongoing interest in Pluto's publishing. It means a lot to us. The unabridged version of this and other episodes of the podcast is available on patreon.com forward slash plutopress. So do check it out if you're not already a member. Okay, it's my pleasure at this point then to welcome to Radicals Conversation, Max Eil, Adrian Buller and Chris Saltmarsh. We're joined today by Chris Saltmarsh, Max Isle, and Adrian Buller. Chris, perhaps you could start by quickly telling us a little bit about yourself, who you are, what your background is.
1: Yeah, thanks, Chris. Um, My name's Chris Saltmarsh. Um, Yeah, I've written Burnt, Fighting for Climate Justice, um, for Pluto Price as part of the Outspoken series. I'm a climate justice activist and a socialist and one of the co-founders of um, Labour for a Green New Deal, which is a campaign for a Green New Deal in and around the Labour Party and the Labour movement in the UK. And I've been involved in various types of both climate and left-wing or socialist organizing over the past seven years or so, combination of direct action and the divestment movement, as well as more recently, Green New Deal stuff. So yeah, I'm really excited to be here and have to chat.
0: Great. Thanks, Chris. Yeah, it's lovely to have you here as well. Um, Yeah, Max, how about yourself?
2: Hey, so I'm Max Eil. I'm the author of the recently released People's Green New Deal. And I have been very active in the anti-Zionist and anti-imperialist movements for a long time. And I also do a lot of research and historical work about global South development theories of development coming from the Third World, especially the Arab region, and particularly Tunisia, uh, intellectual histories of dependency theory, and. Uh, more contemporary work, thinking about the role of agriculture in modern development, and I do that from Wageningen University in the Netherlands, where I am currently a postdoc.
0: Brilliant, thanks, Max. And yeah, Adrian, why don't you finish off?
3: Yeah, hi, um, I'm Adrian Buller, and I am a senior fellow at a progressive economic think tank called Commonwealth with a space in the middle it's impossible to google but it's not the (laughs) colonial enterprise I promise and I work primarily on the intersections of the financial system and the climate crisis so looking at things like control by institutions in the global north of the corporate economy and global south sovereign debt and all the implications that has for climate justice and I'm writing a book with Manchester University Press on the delusions of green capitalism that'll be out next year.
0: Fantastic. Sounds good. We'll look out for that one. Okay. Well, yeah, thanks to all of you again, as I say, for joining us today. So, we have these two books by Max and Chris, Burnt, which, as Chris says, has just come out, and A People's Green New Deal, which came out in May. Uh, and they're both really amazing books with, I guess, slightly different focuses, but I think there's quite a lot of crossover as well. One of the things that Obviously is mentioned in both books as this idea of a Green New Deal. Now, anyone that's been listening to the news or whatever for the last few years will be very familiar with this term, I'm sure. It's widely discussed today, but it's got, I guess, a little bit of a longer history than we might think, uh, given how long it's been in sort of popular discourse. Max, I think in your book, you mentioned its origins um, in finding expression in a Thomas Friedman article in the New York Times. Um, do you want to give us a quick potted history of the Green New Deal, sort of what its origins were, and then kind of how it's emerged in different contexts along the way?
2: Yeah, sure. So the Green New Deal first emerged, to my knowledge, in a rather unfortunate location, which was the New York Times column of Thomas Friedman. If he's not well known to all the listeners, is kind of the the comic in-house uh, jester priest for U.S. imperialism and uh, U.S. malfeasance around the world. Uh, but then it kind of went in slightly more progressive directions. I mean, there were proposals coming from. The UN and also uh, other groups in the US and uh, Europe for Green New Deal starting in the late 2000s. A lot of that energy kind of dissipated. And then it was taken up by the US Green Party, which has advocated a rather radical Green New Deal that was increasingly explicitly eco socialist, focused on demilitarization, anti imperialism, climate debt, sustainable development, North and South, just transitions. And then it reemerged yet again with Ocasio-Cortez and uh, Senator Edward Markey, his name is usually not appended to the discussion, putting forward this idea for a Green New Deal that was pretty skeletal, actually, in its initial thrust, but because AOC is kind of acting as a millennial pseudo-progressive influencer, it really achieved a very wide-ranging influence over a lot of the North American progressive left with no little help from people representing it as much more aggressively left-wing than it was. And in turn, there's kind of been a profusion of proposals for Green New Deals of all across the political spectrum. There's been proposals from Bernie Sanders that were fairly radical. I know that Labour is pushing a quite progressive Green New Deal right now, or sections of Labour, I should say, wouldn't want to call labor a unity. And uh, within the European Union, of course, there's been a fairly right-wing European Green New Deal and also a much more left-wing progressive Green New Deal that's primarily but not solely come from the work around political ecology coming from uh, Barcelona and Portugal. So there's a a variety. It's a very catch-all term that is referring to a wide range of possible proposals for primarily northern climate transition.
0: Mm -hmm. yeah thanks max and chris the green new deal is something that you treat in your book as well now your vision is definitely an eco-socialist one isn't it so in your view what should any green new deal worth its salt uh, contain as its foundational principles let's unpack it a little bit
1: yeah definitely and i think it's an interesting one i think probably both max and i do a pretty good job of pushing the concept of a green new deal I would say pretty close to its limits, maybe Max even more so than me in terms of you know yeah using it to describe what essentially comes pretty close to being eco-socialism. You know, for me, what are some of the, the maybe core unifying elements that we might use to describe any of the green new deals? I'd say you'd probably be looking at quite a significant amount of investment, ideally coming from. The public sector, but you know, I'm sure there are some iterations of the Green New Deal that try and steward it from the private sector as well. You know, if what we're talking about doesn't have quite a significant levels of investment, then it's probably not a Green New Deal. And I think, yeah, there probably has to be some attempt to marry the dual aims of decarbonisation, um, tackling the kind of climate emergency, with broader questions of inequality, economic. Injustice. And so, again, you know, that that can be anything from raising welfare standards, raising minimum wage versus maybe more radical social transformations that kind of seek to rebalance the the class forces or the class dynamics in any given um, society or context, you know, more in favor of the working class. I guess, in terms of what I put forward, you know, I put forward this idea for a socialist Green New Deal. I guess part of the the acceptance of, of doing that is, you know, we have to kind of think about how do we transform the economy from within capitalism. Unfortunately, we're in this situation where we do find ourselves within a capitalist kind of global economy. And unfortunately, that in itself is both the producer of the climate crisis, but but also a barrier to to transitioning or or to, to resolving that crisis. So, you know, some of the pillars of what I put forward, um, I think there's, you know, you can maybe think of about four pillars and, and you know, this isn't exhaustive, but I, I think really we, we should be including in any Green New Deal that's worth organizing around. I think the first is pace. You know, I think there's a really strong global justice argument, certainly, for activists in the global north to be pushing for, whether it's the UK or the US, to really be achieving the, the substantial majority, if not all of the emissions reductions we need to see within the next decade. I think that accounts for what the fair share of global north emissions reductions would be. So that would be decarbonizing emissions in our own countries, while also financing probably about an equivalent amount of emissions internationally. I think the second pillar you'd say is probably scale. So as I said before about investment, I think you'd be looking at really quite considerable levels of public investment. I think, you know, it's really going to involve obliterating through the austerity ideology that's dominated certainly British politics over the past ten years or so that's really kind of put a constraint on public investment and public spending. Um, I'd say maybe the third pillar for me would be expanding public ownership in the public sector. So putting more of the economy into the hands of workers and the people for democratic control. And ultimately, I think this is about stripping out the profit motive from as much of the economy as possible, especially kind of strategic sectors like energy or transport or manufacturing. But really, I think the more of the economy we can strip away the profit motive, bring it into democratic public ownership so we can have this kind of planned economic transition, I think that's going to be really crucial. And I'd say the final pillar is one of internationalism, uh, and, you know, I think Max's book does a really great job of positing what an anti-imperialist um, People's Green New Deal would be. But, you know, I think certainly in the kind of Green New Deal I've been organizing around as well, it has to include, you know, a really serious program of reparations. And I guess in the book, I describe reparations being financial um, kind of repairing for the harms, the loss and the damage inflicted by the Global North on peoples in the Global South, but also structural, and I guess, kind of recognizing that. There's no amount of money in the world that will actually pay for the, you know, the real just dreadful crimes and violences committed by the global north through this kind of history and present of imperialism and colonialism. So there needs to be a kind of structural rebalancing of the global political economy to re-empower peoples and nations in the global south and yeah, kind of reform international institutional architecture so we don't have whether it's climate forums like the UNFCCC or the World Bank or the IMF whatever these international institutions be so that they don't continue to be weighted in the interests of capital and and the royal class and the global north so I would say you know if we if we want a green new deal and we want to stick with that framing which I think there is sense in doing they really need to be some of the key pillars Hmm.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's definitely a full spectrum of proposals that are masquerading as Green New Deals of one form or another. And I want us to talk about some of the more radical aspects of what a Green New Deal could be uh, in just a little bit. But I guess firstly, maybe it'd be interesting to talk about what ideas are floating around there, emerging more from the ruling classes and from you know industry and capitalism that are using that language or that discourse, but really just advocating sort of more of a green capitalism Could someone speak a little bit about what are some of the more illusory efforts sort of out there that are using this language in this discourse of the Green New Deal?
3: Yeah, I'm happy to hop in here and then I'm sure the others will have things to add. But I think a really, really good um, example that comes to mind immediately is, you know, the European Green Deal basically sort of now framed as a post-COVID recovery plan and sort of a green recovery plan and all that kind of build back better kind of language. But primarily, it's about very much an ecological modernization framework. So by that, I mean, basically doing as little as we possibly can to disrupt current systems of power and distributions of wealth and consumption and resource use in the global economy, and particularly within Europe, um, while kind of Decarbonizing or having the kind of illusory goal of decarbonizing existing systems without those major disruptions. Um, and so that's kind of what the Green Deal. In Europe is predicated on. And in particular, it really adheres to what Daniela Gabor, who's a political economist, calls the Washington or the Wall Street, sorry, I refer to the original, the Wall Street climate consensus, which is basically rather than kind of scaling up public investment capacities like Chris was talking about there, it's about kind of using the public monetary and fiscal power that we have to sort of crowd in private investors and private capital and sort of socialize any risks that they might perceive to make investments more appealing for them, kind of securitizing all types of loans and things to shepherd in all of these private investors and allow them to reap the benefits of these new sites of kind of greened accumulation without actually trying to resolve any of the structures and systems that are driving these dynamics in the first place. And that kind of position is echoed again in the bipartisan infrastructure bill in the States. Um, So Kate Aronoff, the journalist has done, you know, really good work covering this, but she points out that, you know, there's this kind of sticky feeling surrounding it, which is that on the one hand, the kind of scale of climate investment that it promises is, you know, in a lot of ways, unprecedented. (laughs) And on the other hand, it's a complete abdication of responsibility. And in addition to, you know, being all about kind of building up domestic renewables and EVs and, you know, not envisioning kind of systems change and, doing away with private cars and all those necessary conversations. It's again about sort of minimal disruption, ecological modernization of existing systems. And again, a lot of it is about sort of de-risking investment opportunities for private finance. And it's an absolute dream for them because so many of these opportunities are publicly backed utilities or infrastructure projects. And so we're just entering a situation in which governments under the guise of kind of climate investment, are basically just creating these new sites of profit and accumulation for private capital. So that would be my first opening comment there. Mm
0: -hmm. Is there anything else that anyone would say about why capitalism is, and the profit motive more specifically, are fundamentally at odds with anything that we should be fighting for? You know, why is green capitalism not the solution? To
2: to give a sort of straw man question. I think one thing that's, Worth adding to the conversation, although I agree with everything that Adrian said, is that the planned outcome is not necessarily capitalism. This is sometimes elided in the conversation, you know, that historical capitalism is a system of hierarchy that emerged after feudalism. And it had a beginning and it had a high period or a low period, however, probably a low period, right, from our perspective. And it will have an end. And the question is, what is is that denouement? What does that end look like? I mean, this is something that has really been put forward by world systems theorists and so forth and I think is more or less compelling, is thinking about what does that system change look like and to what extent is the ruling class actually contemplating a shift in the system itself, even if it's hidden. So, of course, because we're still in the dusk of capitalism They're still talking in terms of the profit motive. But I think it's an open question, really. Is that really what's happening with uh, massive buy-ups of farmland and uh, massive technological infrastructure where we have our daily lives monetized to an extreme extent by a very small handful of monopolies and where at some point growth is going to stop? I say differ from some of the conceptualizations or the prognosis put forward. I mean, I I think the ruling class probably has accepted that indefinite growth maybe can't continue forever, but what is needed is indefinite hierarchy and uneven access to the fruits of labor and world resources. I mean, that's the essential thing. And the form it takes can shift depending on conjuncture. But you see the mainstream journals, like foreign policy and so forth, they're kind of mooting these ideas of accepting, is this the end of growth, et cetera? I mean, we saw some of this in the 1970s. It was for a very different reason then, right? It was actually much more related to pushes related to peripheral claims on, on resources and fighting over the terms of trade in the world system. So that was a very different moment. But we should, I think, at least keep somewhere in our minds this idea that they are more than willing to shift to a different system and use a seemingly progressive rhetoric as a kind of Trojan horse within which to smuggle that shift.
0: Just to shift tack a little bit, I guess, one thing that we're hearing a lot at the moment, still, uh, this kind of like neo-Malthusian arguments right that there's simply too many people on the planet you know David Attenborough has I think made comments to this effect and it's quite a pernicious discourse so why is this sort of yeah Malthusianism gained so much purchase in the present moment and yeah how would you counter that narrative
1: yeah i mean i would say that this seems to be a more prominent you know discourse than we would perhaps like i think you're right to identify david attenborough and i think in some ways he's the archetypical example, right? He's this, you know, perceived widely to be this national treasure, certainly in the UK, and you know, this kind of environmentalist who actually for a very long time didn't really talk about climate change at all and has had this kind of very late in life change of tack and is kind of yeah, it's become his mission. And he works very closely with WWF, you know, one of the more despicable environmental NGOs, to kind of yeah, push this particular message and and I think ultimately, you know, he's he's a patron of the organization Population Matters, which kind of pushes this idea of the need to reduce populations and often under progressive kind of auspices. But I think ultimately it, it's very pernicious. And, you know, and this seeps into his kind of popular work, which is platformed on Netflix and the BBC. And, you know, very rarely would someone like David Attenborough kind of explicitly frame the climate politics he's promoting as one of a very explicit population reduction, or and the kind of violences and harms that come with that. But, you know, I think I think what's particularly unhelpful is that he will very often speak about climate change in quite simplistically as though, you know, this is humans doing, it's a kind of clash between humanity and nature. And, you know, I take issue in the book with this, because I think on one level, perhaps it's technically true to say that the climate crisis has been caused by humanity, but it's not a useful level of abstraction. I think really we need to be narrowing in much closer and, you know, which class within humanity is responsible. And I think, you know, we really need to put the hook on the ruling class and the capitalist class for creating this system, capitalism, which has produced the basis for emissions. But I think almost more importantly, maintained that system, imposed that system violently on working classes, on peasant classes, on peoples and nations, both in its kind of heartland in the UK and then around the world, to almost every corner of the world now um, as well. And I think, you know, it's really important that we're clear on who is to blame. And, you know, some people have written about the need to, for example, put fossil fuel CEOs on trial. And, you know, I'm not I'm not opposed to that per se. You know, I think there should be a degree of accountability for the individuals who have managed and profited from capitalism. But I think it's also important to inform what our solutions are. And I think if we have this, this story that's being told of well, humanity in general is to blame, and there isn't really a great degree of differentiation, whether it's between social or economic classes, or peoples in different countries or regions of the world. You know, I think this produces a vastly warped and incorrect understanding of the nature of the crisis. I think it produces these kind of deeply unhelpful solutions around individual behavior change, or, you know, it says that, what you consume as just you know, any random person is, is as significant as as how the economy is structured and how it's managed and governed. So I think we need a clear effort um, to push back against this, because I think ultimately what it produces, if not explicitly, it, certainly implicitly, it's just kind of misanthropic climate politics, which I think on a purely practical level is really going to inhibit our ability to build a mass movement. And I think you already see that environmentalists have been characterized very often as being kind of Opposed to even some of the basic necessities in life, and I think you know Hawaii I put forward in the book is articulating a, a politics that meets the challenges of the climate crisis, but also meets everybody's basic needs through the same measures. And I think I think that we can counterpose that. I think it's a kind of misanthropic, that that is pushed by some people.
3: Hmm. Yeah, and if I could just add a little bit on that as well, I think you know in addition to all those things, it really feeds into quite cynically the kind of dynamics that we touched on before about kind of trying desperately to, you know, even if there's an acknowledgement that maybe capitalism as we know it, or the like rates of growth we currently have, aren't, you know, tenable among the ruling class, there's still this sort of really strong commitment to maintaining a world system in which they have the, you know, unbelievably exorbitant outsized share of wealth and power and control that they currently do. And so it's much easier to say, oh, hey, look, you know people in the global south have, you know, high birth rates than it is to acknowledge the fact that, you know, we've all seen the kind of classic Oxfam stats about massive emissions equality. The same goes for resource use or, you know, the classic someone in the UK emits as much in two weeks as someone in, you know, Malawi in a year, all those kinds of things. And they're very true. And to actually acknowledge those facts would mean confronting the fact that, you know, we cannot just decarbonize existing systems and distributions as they are. It's simply untenable, even if it were at all ethically sound, which obviously it's not. But just materially as well, it's not tenable. And I think that's a, a reality that people who have a really, really comfortable wealthy position don't want to acknowledge and so you know the kind of neo-Malthusian argument is much much easier much more convenient and you can sort of point and say you know hey look over there and not at me and that's quite powerful particularly when you know we have to confront the reality that in the classic Oxfam martini glass graph that I think a lot of people will probably have seen on emissions inequality. You know, it's the top 10% of the global population are responsible for 50%, you know, of all lifestyle emissions worldwide. But it's important to realize that, you know, The top 10% of the global population puts you at just under £30,000 a year as a salary. So, you know, as soon as you acknowledge those inequalities and the fact that those are what is underlying climate and ecological crisis, then, you know, as a political leader, as, you know, a capitalist elite, All of a sudden, you have to confront incredibly uncomfortable realities about distributions of wealth and power that I think people are just much more happy to ignore and to kind of shift the blame onto people who have, you know, virtually no role in perpetuating and creating these crises.
0: Mm, Yeah, definitely. I think, Max, one thing that really kind of comes through in your book is this sort of strong anti-imperialist tendency right and there's some really interesting sort of things that you talk about in there things like the Cochabamba people's accords the idea of like land back and a lot of this kind of stuff i yeah could you just say a little bit more maybe about well Cochabamba as a sort of radical touchstone that people should know about and some of these other ideas that
2: foreground the anti-imperialist side of climate justice Sure. So I think one of the main problems in a lot of the progressive climate discourse is that because it circulates in the north, it often overlooks some of the fundamental problems uh, that climate change represents for southern nations and the solutions that they have put forward in order to, to deal with that. While at the same time, you know, there's a bit of a aggressive demonization of saying, okay, we need to look at this with an anti-imperialist perspective. People are like, what does that mean? So the the Cochabamba People's Agreement, and, and it was necessary to set the stage because I think this kind of flack has really been effective in allowing for this uh, re-emergence of a very Eurocentric climate discourse, which needs to be pushed back upon to make a world big enough for everybody, right? Because people in the North also need to be aware of how we might be unintentionally reinforcing Eurocentrism in our own climate discourse in order to undermine that way of thinking, right? So the Cochabamba People's Agreement was a reaction to the Copenhagen semi-accords or discords, where the governments of the North basically tried to ram through this idea that emissions reductions should be more or less voluntary. And then second of all, there was no historical need for reparations from the North to the South. This was very effectively blockaded by a number of Latin American states, among them Venezuela, Cuba, and Bolivia, and It's important that it was those states because, of course, those states are all states that suddenly have been encanted as, in one way or another, controversial, or in one way or another, lacking in democratic credentials, or in one way or another, lacking in social justice credentials, or in one way or another, troublesome, or perhaps most perniciously, in one way or another, lacking in ecological credentials. And we're talking especially about Venezuela and uh, Bolivia. Cuba is a, a class of its own and hasn't really been successfully demonized on that front. But in fact once we look at the history, they've actually, these were the world actors acting in the most progressive way to say, okay, we're going to reject the ecological imperialism emanating from the North and trying to be enshrined into international law and binding agreements. And instead, we are going to put together a forum and architecture in which the South can put forward its own demands. So Morales put out a statement calling for a, basically a world People's agreement on climate change, and out of this emerged the Cochabamba People's Agreement. And what I always insist upon whenever I discuss this is one of the very good things for people in the north about the Cochabamba People's Agreement is that it is readily accessible, right? Anyone who happens to be listening this can just plug it into Google and read it in any number of languages if English is not their preferred reading language. And you can read it and see exactly what the content of the proposal was, and we can all collectively learn about it together and think about how to incorporate it into our work. So I'll just very briefly summarize it, because actually I really prefer people read it themselves. But the the core of it was the demand for climate debt repayment. So what this was calculated as is that uh, the climate debt, which was made up of mitigation debt, Uh, an adaptation debt, and a debt related to the foregone cheap development paths. In other words, the southern nations are not able to use cheap, readily accessible energy sources like coal and oil, which has very high energy rate of return on energy invested. Instead, they have to use more complicated forms of energy going forward, right, if they don't want to continue to emit. then there's a mitigation debt in order to deal with the ongoing damages, Uh, that they continue to suffer on a daily or yearly basis. And then there's an adaptation debt so that they can change their societies or change their physical infrastructure in order to prevent further damage. Now, these sets of debts were actually conceived as only one component of the broader ecological debt. This is also important to keep in mind that they didn't go in favor of this kind of prevailing climate reductionism, right? They saw the climate crisis as a subset of the broader ecological crisis, and in turn, that this was only a subset of the broader colonial debt, too. So how it was framed was important, right? It was leaving space, actually, for further social claims from the south upon the north. And so the amount is critical. They asked for 6% of northern GNP per year. So I crunched it. And, you know, that comes to around 1.3 trillion in uh, US dollar transfers from the US to the south on a yearly basis. And from the OECD, in other words, the US, plus most of Europe, Japan, and Australia, that that comes to three point two trillion right? And if we think think about it as 6% of Northern GNP, that effectively means that we're talking about what can loosely be understood as a controlled shrinkage of the GDP and the amount of resources the North can make claims upon in a year. Now, this doesn't mean worse lives for people in the North in general, right? Because we know that capitalism is uh, organizing the production and use of resources in uh, both inefficient and unproductive, wasteful, and socially destructive ways. But it does mean that we're talking about a mass transfer of resources from the North to the South, right? And this is clearly incompatible with capitalism. It's clearly incompatible with imperialism, because imperialism is basically a system for the organized transfer of resources from the South to the north, this is a social scientist named Ricard Warlenius uh, he said, reverse the arrow of arrears, in other words, to put the value flow in the other way around and make it from north to south, inverting its historical pattern. There were also important other provisions related to joint technology development and making sure that wouldn't be, again, a mechanism of uh, future dependence of the south upon the north. There were calls for popular tribunals, in other words, of corporations and so forth, also individuals. There was, in effect, calls for the demilitarization. There were calls for national sovereignty. In other words, that states would not be able to actually carry out these climate policies unless their national sovereignty their political sovereignty, the fruit of the process, the world historic process of decolonization, unless that was actually respected, right? We can actually say that this is, it's not respected both on the right, but it's also not really respected on the left, unfortunately. I mean, people are more than willing to say, not actively defend Southern sovereignty because there's accusations that you end up being an apologist for one or another, Un- unfortunate or or a horrible thing that a southern state can do in the name of sovereignty, but that doesn't mean we shouldn't defend sovereignty. Um, so this was the essence of the Cochabamba People's Agreement, and it was basically a revolutionary program. I mean, this was a revolutionary program for world eco-socialism in a certain sense. They didn't use those terms for a variety of reasons. That's what it called for, and. I think one of the sad things is that it's been very much suppressed in a lot of the climate conversations since 2014-15. One is hard-pressed to find references to it, especially in the North, even though it was just a historic and historically well thought out, document with a very wide range of global south consensus and it is something that we really should collectively i think endeavor to put back on the table as a touchstone for our own climate politics as individuals as collectives uh, as parties as movements going forward
0: Mm, yeah no absolutely a lot of iterations of like Green New Deal can come across as very inward looking. Um, you know, we might be able to imagine them operating in a given national context, say, you know, here in Britain, but you don't want to do that while still reproducing the same patterns of inequality or colonialism globally. So Chris, I mean, you talk a lot about how things might work in a British context. How could a Green New Deal be enacted here at the level of the nation state and still be yeah, this kind of vehicle for climate justice internationally? with regards to like the supply chain and like energy use and extraction and everything?
1: I guess the first thing I just say is, I think there is an interesting question here about how far can we kind of reasonably pull this kind of concept of a Green New Deal. I guess when I think about it, I think that there's something about the Green New Deal that in some ways by virtue of our kind of current political architecture revolving around the nation state as a kind of key or central unit of kind of political power It's kind of in some ways a necessarily national program. And that's not to say that it shouldn't be acting both locally and internationally as well. But the Green New Deal is primarily being enacted from a government of a nation state. And so, yeah, I think it's really important that we don't you know, fall into this trap, which I think many iterations of the Green New Deal have done, of simply kind of making quite a nationalistic argument to decarbonize within the borders of one country and so i think you know it's beholden on us, i think as, as activists in the global north to seek to to capture state power within our own countries and use the the levers of the state to transform our own society and our own economy um, to begin to divert resources as max was saying back towards the global south and reverse that that flow of resources you know one of the things i write about is kind of connecting the need to expand the public sector at home in the UK, for example, through, you know, nationalizing key sectors or, or yeah, sectors of the economy um, and what that can do for a kind of procurement strategy. And I think the, basically the more of the economy that we have under public ownership and under democratic planning, the more we can begin to reverse some of the trends of capitalism in global supply chains and just kind of actively promote Human rights, but also workers' rights and environmental standards, and really begin to um, discipline the the various elements of capital that operate throughout supply chains that maybe we would have influence over. You know, I think the other big, you know, really big question, which I think is fortunately beginning to get a lot more attention, certainly over the last couple of years, is this real challenge of what are the rare earth mineral resources that are going to be necessary or for a lot of the the green technology that is uh, is upheld as a panacea by by so many in the climate movement. You know things like lithium, nickel, cobalt. These are resources that are incredibly scarce. You know there's certainly not enough of them in the world to, for example, just to, to switch every fossil fuel car to a, an electric car. Um, and as well, you know their, their extraction is is associated with displacement and violence and the taking away of sovereignty. And so I think as well, you know, as activists and hopefully you know a socialist government in the in the global north, I think what you know, what we'd want to be seeing is is planning our, our economic transition with that in mind and reducing the the necessity to consume those mineral resources as much as possible and ultimately playing our part in in as I was saying before, kind of creating a global political economy where local sovereignty, indigenous sovereignty uh, and stewardship of these resources is promoted and also democratic um, ownership of these resources in any given country. And I think, you know, for too long countries like the UK have undermined those principles on the international arena and in international relations. And and really there needs to be an effort to reverse that trend. And I think, you know, I think Max in his book raises some really challenging questions about whether that's even possible, you know, whether it's even possible for a socialist or a radical social democratic government to come to power in, in the global north right now. And even if it did, whether that would be allowed to be successful. So I I think it's a challenge and it's not to say that that that'll be easy, but I think as people for whom that is part of the mission, that is part of the goals of the movement we're kind of trying to build, I think those imperatives need to be absolutely central.
0: Mm, Yeah, absolutely. I mean, one thing that, was very interesting in, in Max's book, and I think you kind of almost alluded to it there, is this idea of um, uh, agroecology, uh, which is, again, something that's perhaps absent in a lot of discussions uh, around Green New Deal. Yeah, Max, could you, could you say a bit about this concept of agroecology and how it's distinct from, you know, modern industrial agriculture, uh, why it's so significant to discussions around climate justice, um, and I suppose also in, in the way that it kind of touches on issues like COVID as well and, um, you know, pandemics and so on.
2: Yeah, absolutely. So agroecology emerged more or less starting in the 1970s in Latin America, especially Mexico. And it emerged at first as an intellectual challenge to the prevailing dominance of the Green Revolution. And this idea that the best way for Southern agricultures to develop was to copy this pattern of Northern agriculture of high-input, heavily mechanized pattern of agricultural development. And that model then was slightly transformed and then applied to the South in a certain way through what's called the Green Revolution, highly capitalized forms of agriculture using specific kinds of uh, seeds and that would supposedly increase yields. Now, what was discovered in the 1970s in Mexico? Although analog discoveries were made all over the global South, not necessarily going by the name of agroecology, is that more or less traditional forms of agriculture, by which I mean non-input intensive agriculture using uh, more or less closed biological systems, continued to be deployed all over the South by smallholder farmers in wherever you could find them, more or less. Now, people were like, why is this the case, right? And how can we understand this better? So a lot of different scientists, uh, agronomists, uh, ethnobotanists, anthropologists, went out and said, okay, what, what exactly is this? And does it have a scientific basis? Can we use our academic, often Western scientific training to understand what is the social and ecological logic behind what these peasants are doing? And what they discovered was that there was a lot of ecological and social logic behind what was happening, that these were more resilient systems, that if, for example, a drought hit, these crops were much more resilient to drought because they were often not as reliant on irrigation and water as the highly capital-intensive Green Revolution crops. Uh, They were also more resistant to blight, various forms of crop disease, or even excess precipitation, precisely because there were genetic rainbows they were genetic varieties including different varieties of the same crops you could have 30 varieties of maize or corn in a plot the size of someone's living room which means that in contrast to the prevailing model across uh, large capitalized plots all over the third world and also the first world by th- at that moment this type of farming was incredibly resilient which is exactly what you want if you are a smallholder who needs that in order to feed your family. So as agroecology developed, they understood more and more the scientific basis of it. And they understood, okay, this farmer is planting this type of what we used to think was a weed, but actually that's the type of plant, the type of crop, if you want to use a term, that a certain type of predator of a corn pest prefers to live upon. So if, we pl- if you plant that next to the corn crop, you don't have a huge... Pest problem on your corn crop. Why? Because if that pest starts to grow, it's going to be immediately consumed by the predator. Therefore, you keep the pest problem under control and you don't need to apply a pesticide because you're actually allowing certain forms of natural, zero input uh, pest control to do it for you. So, you have similar uh, processes going on all over the place. You have nutrient recycling because you aren't bringing in fertilizers and so forth. So, you actually, there's a lot of social and economic efficiency. Uh, in this process. Uh, so agroecology is basically a broadening up of that and seeing, okay, how can we develop that with uh, the application of Western lab science to really make it more and more productive or resilient and so forth in order to make smallholders' lives better. So this kind of reached a, has reached a state of the art in Cuba where on certain plats, at least, you have people working less on the plot and actually having improved yields with respect to the chemical and input-intensive agriculture. Now, this is super important for both third-world development in general and the kind of unfinished process of national liberation and also the project of saving the world, to put it rather grandiosely, from, from global warming for a variety of reasons. I mean, on the one hand, it is a way of increasing the production of use values or things that people need to survive in the third world and allowing for accumulation from below, right, which is really central for the National Liberation Project. Countries need to be able to have uh, produce enough of what they need or more than enough of what they need so that they aren't reliant on the north for those things, ideally, right? That's part of it. But what's also super significant from the ecological perspective is that this really helps us resolve both the climate crisis and the broader ecological crisis, because you in, in shifting to this form of farming from a capital intensive farming, you immediately reduce a huge portion of the toxins that agriculture pours into our world. Uh, You remove herbicides, you remove pesticides, you remove the process of uh, industrialization related to excess or inappropriate scale mechanization, and so forth. And instead, what you have is a system of production that not only removes the toxins that are produced through regular processes of industrialized farming, but actually pulls in carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. So this is what La Via Campesina, which is the international peasant movement, the peasant way, that is actually protesting right now the effective exclusion of peasant voices from the UN World Food Summit. But what they've been insisting is agroecology to cool the world, right? Because this form of farming, when it's done properly, reverses the kind of CO2-emitting logic of industrialized agriculture and instead uh, increases soil organic matter and seeds carbon dioxide in the soil and actually pulls carbon out of the atmosphere. And if one looks at the UN documents, right, this isn't just something that Via Campesina is claiming that has no scientific base. In fact, it's been totally substantiated. And it's being included now in United Nations documents and the United Nations Climate Plan. They're saying, yeah, what are called natural climate solutions, very unfortunate terminology to describe what's actually a very important process that's linked to traditional, uh, what we can loosely call traditional peasant farming, is that these natural climate solutions uh, can actually reverse the historical process of emitting carbon. And I went through a decent amount of the literature for my book. It's excessively footnoted, so if anyone wants to check it out. But what it looks like is, say, something between 10 and 40% of current annual emissions, that amount could be actually pulled from the atmosphere every year using agroecology. So even if it's the lower end, even if it's 10%, if you get to zero emissions, then what you find is that agroecology and other forms of land management actually become essential to getting us back below our overshot where we currently are. So this is super important, but it's also super important, of course, that we keep in mind that it has to be braided with the other programmatic components for third world national development, right? Like defense of sovereignty, national liberation, and so forth, so that agroecology can be part of these national projects for the global south, and also should be part of national, although explicitly not nationalist, uh, types of of projects for the north that think about how the north can move to developmental convergence with the south.
0: Mm. Yeah, no, it's, it's fascinating stuff. I mean, I guess one thing that, Chris, you, you talk about in the book is in addition to taking sort of urgent, necessary steps to mitigate the worst effects of, you know, runaway climate change. And I guess agroecology folds into that. Um, But you also talk about adapting to climate change as an inevitable reality uh, and doing so in a sort of just manner that isn't kind of apocalyptic and authoritarian or whatever. Um, Could you say a little bit about why a just adaptation in addition to efforts to mitigate, you know, the worst effects... Um, and then I'd be interested to talk a little bit about the movement and strategy. Um, but yeah, first that question.
1: Yeah, definitely. Um, I wanted to include something on adaptation because I think to start with, there's been a kind of unproductive pitting against each other of mitigation and adaptation, where you know adaptation is often mobilized by you know the very worst people as a strategy, kind of against instituting the transformations we need to decarbonize you know dismantling the fossil fuel industry, transforming agriculture all of these things that are going to stop profiting capital. But I think, you know, we're in a moment really where we certainly are seeing these real extreme weather events increasingly regularly and, you know, every corner of the world now, wildfires, flooding. We're also seeing, you know, crop failures and, you know, other disruptions to food systems and, you know, a lot of these are locked in. So even if we were to stop emitting, you know, kind of today or within the next five years, you know, incredibly ambitious timelines, we'd still see a lot of these effects, um, certainly for a long time. And, you know, the reality is we're not going to globally decarbonize within five or 10 years or, you know, I think whether we even do that by 2050, which is a pell as the kind of global goal. You know, I think, again, I think we should be pessimistic about that. And so I think there does need to be a degree of thinking about, well, How do we relate to this? You know, reality is quite unfortunate reality and the the kind of new ecological or climate reality that we're going to live in. And so I think there will certainly be ways of adapting to the climate crisis or extreme weather, um, which as Max alluded to before, are going to primarily be about shoring up the conditions of the ruling class. So, you know, buying up land in less impacted areas, um, you know, we could certainly see a, an attempt to, as you mentioned, really have an authoritarian response in the context of kind of like increasing an ongoing crisis. But I think you know we need to be putting forward a vision of socially just adaptation alongside a program of um, radical mitigation. And I think you know for me that looks like making sure that emergency and rescue services are heavily resourced, making sure that we've got adequate healthcare and social care as well, and that those are you know thoroughly under public ownership, obviously, it means making our infrastructure more resilient to the kind of the shocks that we'll see, whether that's flood defences or buildings, making them resistant to storms. And of course, you know, making our growing our food production and distribution as resilient as possible, you know, what that gives us a window into, and I think all of this really tells us is that we can't separate the measures we need for adaptation from mitigation, because I think it's the very same kind of elements of the capitalist economy, which are limiting investment in emergency services and public services and new infrastructure frankly a lot of this stuff isn't profitable and so that's what the blockage is and so you know we can't say well we do adaptation now because mitigations failed." it's the same transformation for the economy that we need to institute for both of them and actually I'd be interested um, to hear what Adrian thinks because you know I think a big part of this as well is about insurance and I think you know we have a, a capitalist insurance system that is just totally not fit for the reality that we're facing of kind of constant crisis that might be pandemic, but it it will also be um, the disruptions of the climate crisis. And, you know, I think the insurance system as part of the financial system as a whole, you know, I'd be interested in Adrian's thoughts on how that is both producing the climate crisis and other crises, but also, you know, the role it's playing in in limiting our action and and, and again, how we might leverage it or mobilize finance towards climate justice, maybe. Yeah, no,
3: that's a really interesting question. And I think it kind of gets insurance is a really good representation that gets to the kind of heart of the sort of giving with one hand and taking with another that finance is currently doing and particularly like the rise of the kind of sustainable finance. And I'm using that with heavy air quotes. You can't see kind of movement and sort of the rise of that as a really trendy and kind of profitable industry. Um, So interestingly, you know, insurance is probably the least sexy of the <laughs> components of the financial system. But ultimately, you know, they're absolutely pivotal to any kind of fossil fuel project going ahead. So before a project is able to break ground, even if they've had bank lending, they've got you know equity investors, they've got backing from the government, it simply won't happen without an underlying uh, sort of insurer there to guarantee the project. And so they are kind of the linchpin in basically any kind of fossil fuel project going ahead. But at the same time, they are, you know, the most exposed in a lot of ways um, of the kind of private sector to the impacts of climate breakdown and, you know, ecological collapse because they technically are sort of on the line for, you know, when people's homes floods or when there are wildfires or when crops fail. And so, you know, they're quite complicated in terms of where they sit at the nexus of this. But I think that's true for, you know, the financial system as a whole, which is basically, you know, it's identified all these opportunities to profit from the climate crisis, to sort of speculate on different outcomes while also, you know, directly contributing to its genesis. So I think, you know, one of the things that is really, really important for any kind of, to bring it back to the Green New Deal to to consider is, you know, taking a little bit of the history of the original New Deal. And obviously, you know, Roosevelt's New Deal had a lot of things that we could criticize, but that's kind of beyond the scope. But one thing that it did that I think gets left out of a lot of Green New Deals is kind of pay close attention to the fact that the financial system was at the root of the problems that they were facing. And then in response to that, you know, go about directly trying to rein in its power and prevent it from, you know, creating a similar crisis again in the future. You know, so that's things like the Glass-Steagall Act or all sorts of rules about bank deposits. And that was a really interesting kind of insight to have and one that we should replicate. And for the UK and the US in particular, where, you know, the Green New Deal has been so effectively popularized, you know, the city of London and and New York are where the vast majority of kind of global financial transactions and insurance activity is happening. And so any kind of laws that we pass, any kind of legislative reforms and restrictions that we place on their activities have knock on effects throughout the entire world in a really powerful way. And so I think that is something that Green New Deal campaigners should pay close attention to. And I know, you know, Chris, you have done a lot of campaigning around the financial sector and insurance as well. And I think it's a great sign to see movements and activists really starting to pay close attention to their actions. But yeah, they'll be sort of absolutely critical to to how this plays out going forward.
0: Yeah, definitely. Um, well, we've been going for an hour, so let's draw things slowly towards a conclusion by talking about strategy and organising, really, because, Chris, you're quite clear in your book that the main way, given the time scale we're talking about, that we're going to hope to you know, have any chance of success is to seize state power, whether that's through the ballot box or some form of revolution. So what can we do in Britain, I guess, but in other countries in the Global North to build the kind of movement? What is a necessary component to building that movement? Because the environmental movement has clearly not had that many successes in its track record. So what needs to be done differently? Yeah.
1: It can be very easy as climate activists to list all of the things we'd like to see, all of the transformations we'd like to see. I think very often, certainly in the global north, you know, climate movements have revolved around, you know, resisting the particularly bad things, you know, whether that's particular bits of legislation or fossil fuel infrastructure. I think, you know, collectively we need to become more propositional because I think, you know, we can seek to leverage or influence or make demands of of a capitalist ruling class, but I think ultimately there's only so far you get um, when the other side, you know, is in power. You know, they also have the full power of the state um, to crush you. And so, you know, this this question of how do you achieve, how do you capture state power is not an easy one. And, you know, I, I think in the book and, you know, certainly talking here or anywhere else, I wouldn't want to kind of delude people that, you know, it's a very simple, well, you take control of the Labour Party and we run a really good election campaign and then we're the government and, you know, full socialism now. You know, it's clearly not that simple. And I think the experience activists have had, you know, in the Labour Party under Jeremy Corbyn, through the Democratic Party, with Bernie Sanders as being the inspiration, you know, I think very much, you know, their cases in point of the real deep, serious structural challenges to the strategies of working through liberal, democratic, often authoritarian political systems to capture state power. So, you know, I think part of what I put forward is there needs to be an orientation towards that goal. There needs to be an orientation around political parties, and these will necessarily be imperfect political parties, followed, you know, quite often very bad people, um, the Labour Party again, case in point. But I think they need to be flanked and they need to be buttressed by really powerful social movements. So, um, you know, I think it's been although I have critiques of, of both. You know, I write about them in the book. Uh, it's been encouraging to see Extinction Rebellion and the youth strikes mobilize new constituencies of people around this kind of vision of climate justice. So street mobilization using direct action, and I think, you know, hopefully increasingly militant direct action, but also, you know, orienting those forms of mobilization around a more propositional politics and with the express aim of supporting you know a movement that ultimately seeks to capture state power and then i think yeah the other flank would be a, a radical and uh, a militant uh, labor movement that is really prepared to take industrial action really serious industrial action not just resisting you know the bad things that are imposed on us and that's an important part of it uh, and not just defending you know the immediate material interests of you know workers in any specific Job or workplace, and yeah, that's an important part of trade unionism. But, 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 yeah, really having the confidence to take industrial action for this propositional vision, and ultimately, as I say, towards the aim of winning state power and then defending that capture of state power, but also pushing whatever the government is further. And I think if there's anything that people take away from the book, you know, I think that bringing together of the climate movement and the labor movement, I think is strategically absolutely necessary, but it also needs to involve a radicalization of existing climate movements and existing labour movements, and also a kind of upgrade, a kind of step change in the tactics and the strategies that, that these various elements are prepared to deploy in service of, of our kind of broader political aims.
0: That was Max Isle, Adrian Buller, and Chris Saltmarsh on Radicals and Conversation. If you're enjoying the discussion and you want to keep listening, then the unabridged version of this and other episodes of the podcast is available on patreon.com forward slash plutopress. A reminder also that podcast listeners can get 50% off both Burnt and the People's Green New Deal. Just head over to plutobooks.com and use the coupon podcast at the checkout. We'll be back next month with another episode of Radicals and Conversation. So until then, thanks very much for listening and goodbye.